How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jay. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 150. Ding, ding, ding. That's one ding for each 50 episodes we've done. I should have got the poppers. Yeah. yeah. I'll do it for 200. I get the poppers. We're, we're, yeah, we're excited. Yeah. We're excited for 200. I get one of those, like, the, the blowy thing. What are they called? Like, the two... The, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, like it's them. a whistle thing, but like... It, Actually, what are they called? I don't know. I can't even do the sound for lack of... Embar- or for fear of embarrassment. They make like a... Oh, that's actually pretty good. Thank you. Well done. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. I just what the hell is it called? It's like a blower. It's like a party trumpet. Just oh, okay. I like it. Party trumpet. How are party you? Party trumpet. Don't want to blow the wrong party trumpet. I'm doing really well, Zeke. We are at 150. Yes. Which is a great milestone, but mm-hmm. we don't really necessarily have anything fun planned for 150. Do we really even do anything proper for 50? 100. No, 100. Just... We had fun. We did a competition. We had we had people come back on for a, a little voice. Memo. Yeah, I think it's just like things. 50 was more like we were getting excited. We were approaching one year. Right, of course. So yeah, that was were... more of yeah the year non-celebration. Yeah. Because whereas... we did 52 pretty much at the same time, obviously, mm-hmm. um, in terms of pre-records. And yeah. No, but I think I think that's what makes this milestone special is that we're not going to treat it so special. Yeah. It just is. It's part yeah. of our, our long-running series. I mean, we're coming up to the end-of-the-year awards. Yeah. Uh, Ooh, those are very... Gee, Jesus Christ, Zeke. It is December this week. It is December Spider-Man is almost out. The Oscars... <laughs> I watched I watched an honest-to-God yesterday. I watched an Oscar predictions video for next year. That's yes. at the point of the season we're at now. Pretty crazy, eh? Yeah. By the way, I haven't heard of half those films. <laughs> I'm really out... What the hell is Belfast? Is it going to win? Let's find oh, out. I saw the trailer for that when we went oh, and saw... Oh, okay. Did we? Oh, I'm trying to remember if I... Yeah, no, because I've been the last couple of times. But yeah, we saw the, the trailer for it. Um, oh, God, I think it was the Knit Ram. Oh, okay. It was a black and white film. Oh, my God. Was it the one that turns color? Yeah. Oh! That one. I'm hearing it is immaculate. Like, that's the front runner. Like, Ooh. ahead of Dune. Wowzers. So, good... Uh, Good pick. You know what? No, it was last night in Soho because I saw that trailer twice. There I remember you go. that. There you wow, go. That's the trailer you didn't wow. remember until we brought it up. Apparently, <laughs> well, I didn't know what it was called. Well, it looked great. It looked fantastic. Visually. It does. It does look fantastic. The the I remember the soundtrack being quite profound. Mm. The score. Yeah. Hopefully, you can remember your fact that you have for me. Yes, I will. Fact for the film of the week, Jaws, which we're excited you. I keep thinking, Zeke. I keep thinking. Have we already done Jaws? We haven't. Uh, we really weird. haven't. I don't know. It's weird. I, know. That, I mean, it's more weird that we hadn't done a Spielberg director's corner. I know, after 30 opportunities. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. Well, my fact of the week, Zeke, refers to the genre of film, which, you know, you can, you can definitely argue one way or another. You know, I think it's a bit of a horror. It's a bit of an action. There's, mm-hmm. there's a lot going on there. But a lot of people have actually claimed that this is, in actuality, the creation of a subgenre of shark terror, okay. which you could argue because you have films like the open water films. Obviously there's a bunch of sequels to Jaws, which I don't think either of us have seen and Spielberg was involved in them. I imagine. Uh, and of course you've got Sharknado, which is also new, but I would like, what are we going to say about Sharknado? Oh, they're great. Oh, okay. It's fantastic. <laughs> was I can't believe the, the main star is worth like 40 something million dollars because of those movies. That makes sense. It's crazy. That makes sense to me. I buy it, but yeah, I would put this film in another subgenre. Personally, I would put it in the daylit horror subgenre. 
because almost the whole film takes place during the day. And kind of like a, a Midsommar? Uh, exactly like Midsommar. Yeah. Which we talked about a few weeks ago. Check it out. Zeke, what's your fun fact? So I had a bit more fun with my fun fact. Oh, good. Um, Slightly more fun than my fun fact. So obviously, this actually does play into the director, particularly, and quite the intimate... Uh, Senior Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, yeah. <laughs> and the close relationship that he had particularly with uh, George Lucas. Um, right, Which okay. I'm sure Lucas will eventually get his own uh, director's corner on this. Well, uh, it's mm-hmm. funny because the if you go all the way back to our Matrix episode, way, way, way back, we had a very similar conversation. when I That was the first time I saw Jaws, so we talked about it on the show, and we talked about specifically their relationship together. Mm. So, so, I don't know well, how this is going to tie into connects that. to that, um, and also okay. connects to the... Uh, Infamous, now infamous, Shark. Um, of course, which, yes. Which, uh, Jake, can you t- just, just an, an additional to my trivia fact, a question. Oh, my God. Do you God, know the this, name this of the, the shark? second week in a row. Um, <laughs> oh, 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 God. I feel like I do know this. What's the name of the bloody shark? Is it like a Roy? <laughs> it's the same name as the, sh- the main shark in Finding Nemo. Oh, it's Bruce. It is Bruce. Oh, it's Bruce. Um, which I don't know if that was a callback, maybe. I feel like... That must have been. Has to be, I'd that say, because be obviously, it. you know... Name's Bruce. Yeah. But, be... but who played Bruce in Finding Nemo? That'd be interesting. That could also... I feel like it's a pretty iconic voice, too. I might have to double-check that. Oh, no, I'm thinking of Eric Banner. For some reason, I thought his name was Bruce Banner, but that's the name of the Hulk that Eric mm-hmm. Banner also played. That's what I'm... This is the second time I've got my Eric and Bruce's mixed up. Yeah. God damn it, Banner. So, um, this is quite an interesting one. Before filming began on Martha's Vineyard, Spielberg invited industry friends, including Martin Scorsese, George Lucas, and screenwriter John uh, Milius, which I'm assuming is... Wow, wow. this is um, pre-Taxi Driver Scorsese. Yeah. Wow, okay. Interesting. Um, And then, of course, they were all mentored by uh, Francis Ford Coppola, who's a couple of years older than them, uh, to check out uh, the mechanical shark in development. When Lucas playfully stuck his head in the shark's mouth, Millenus and Spielberg grabbed the controls and uh, clamped the jaw shut, and it stuck, trapping the rising direct, rising star director. So oh my god! George Lucas inside the shark. That's what he gets. Deprying Lucas, uh, Lucas loose. The guys snuck out of the workshop, afraid they had broken the contraption. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a bunch of rich boys just getting in trouble there, playing with toys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Much, I mean, much to Lucas's American graffiti young teenage hooligan characters, mm, it would sound like they did the exact same thing. That is true. American Graffiti is a great film. Um, mm. That's I I kind of love that because like just those stories of like those that first off the 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 groups that they would have compiled yeah. and the stories and ideas they would have ex- shared would have been absolutely maniacal. But I like hearing stories like that. Just boys being boys, yeah. having fun. And then now we have to have, like, female directors and everything. I'm kidding. <laughs> Ru- ruining ruining a group of boys having their heads eaten by sharks. They're ruining the moments. God, I'm going to have to cut that one out, eh? I don't, think, I don't think that translated very well, did it? No. <laughs> did not. Uh, I'm going to take a safe bet and say it's on the poster behind me, Jaws. It is. Um, the film is and on the most definitely would have it on my own personal list. I don't even nice. think it's a debate. I would too. Um, there would be probably at least five Spielberg films on my list. Mm. Um, at which, least? Okay. Um, which we'll talk about in the second half of the show. Quite the impact this director has had over not only the course of uh, the 70s, but his whole career. Mm. No? 
For with sure. very few misfires. Where are they at? <laughs> okay, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> but we can talk about that. Ready, play one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that will we'll discuss that in the second half of the show. Jake, mm, what have you caught in the last that's week? That's me. Um, quite a bunch of stuff actually. Kind of all over the place. I'll mention obviously we did before sunset last week. I rewatched it again since because I just love it so much. And I also rewatched Before Midnight again, which you haven't seen. Nope. So I've now seen the first film twice, the second film three times, and the third film twice. But Before Sunset being twice in just the last week. Mm. And so, still loving it. Still loving it. Still excellent. That Before Midnight's going to be a fascinating discussion. Fascinating. But that's all I'm going to say on those. Also attended the Murdoch Uni uh, end of year screenings. Mm-hmm. Which we sort of talked about off the air a little bit. It's tricky because the majority of people listening to this probably have no access to or any idea what half these films are. But I just wanted to give them a shout out. A lot of nice short films. People well, it's graduating. something we participated in in previous years. We were yeah, um, and obviously now we're a few years removed from university. At least our screen undergraduate degrees. So it's it's nice that you still uh, attend them because you can see kind of who's coming up through the ranks and. What yeah, well, it's good to keep in mind. locally produced films uh, yeah. were made, for better or worse. <laughs> for better or worse, yeah. It was good. I will say there was one eerie connection in the fact that one of the films was called Disconnected. Ah, yes. And that, that threw me off. And it was about a, a relationship over a, a dating app. Mm. I was like, this seems familiar. Yeah. <laughs> did your, did your 17-year-old self be like, dude, I was like years ahead of this curve? <laughs> I think I was twenty. I was twenty-two when that finished. Yeah, but when you wrote it, wasn't it? Oh, like... I get. Yeah, well, I wrote it. I wrote it before I started uni. Yeah, I think it was the February right before we started. So that would have been I turned. Tw- I turned twenty that year. So okay, I was, okay, I was nineteen. That's yeah, okay. That's fair enough. Yeah, I'll give you that. You're hmm. twenty-four now. Oh God! Don't tell me that. <laughs> you're you're twenty-four now. I am indeed. Ah, I take am. that. Well, the only other thing I watched this week is... <laughs> okay, let's do this. So I watched a brand new film that was dropped digitally very recently, starring Andrew Garfield. Can you guess what the film was? I remember hearing about this, and now I'm blanking. I will say this. It is not Tick, Tick, Boom. That is not the Andrew Garfield film I watched recently, which is out on Netflix. I wanted to watch it, but... So, I, so what, uh, what film was it? So this film is called Mainstream. Now, I'll give you a few little uh, dot points for what the film okay. sort of is meant. Because I saw a trailer a couple of months ago. So this seems interesting enough, you know. It's uh, it's interesting. So it's directed by Gia Coppola. We just mentioned Francis Ford Coppola. That's mm-hmm. his granddaughter. I don't think it's Sophia's daughter, though. It might be like a niece or something. Okay. As far as... I'm, I'm not too sure. But within the Coppola directing family, mm. let's say that. Are we getting uh, diminishing returns on this lineage? <laughs> Each generation gets a little weaker than the last. Yeah. Uh, nah, I, I think Sophia's got a really good argument, but she also didn't direct The Godfather, so that's a tough, yeah, it's a tough uh, yeah. filmography to beat. Um, even though she's got brilliant films of her own, check it out. Uh, we've done three of her films on the show, yeah, haven't we? She's the most Holy done director, equally most done director, I think, on this show. Oh uh, yeah, now alongside who did we just do recently? Wes Anderson. Yeah. I think we've done three of each. Um, yeah, but anyway, regardless of that. So I went in knowing that much, knowing it stars Andrew Garfield, Maya Hawke, of course, is Ethan Hawke's um, daughter, Uma Thurman, of course. 
Um, she's in Stranger Things and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I was like, oh, I like seeing her and stuff. So it's like, it's her and Andrew Garfield in a film that is very um, flashy and sort of goes into this whole idea of internet fame and celebrityism, I guess, uh, where you have Andrew Garfield as sort of this uh, mysterious sort of bum character who uh, Maya Hawke's character discovers and realizes he has some potential to, you know, be like a star on, on the celebrities and YouTube mm. and things like that. And that sort of turns into this semi-down-spiraling journey of uh, online stardom and fame and fortune and things like that. Now, that's what the film is meant to be. Okay. But it's films like this that remind me, because we talked about a film like I'm Blame Society mm-hmm. a few months ago. We were actually uh, offered a film code to talk about that film. Yeah. And I think we were sort of divisive on it. Um, you know, I, I liked it a, quite a bit. You were sort of in the middle of the road from memory. Yeah. Um, but I think a film like that, is on such a tightrope, especially when, you know, it doesn't have a lot of money and um, they're working in very limited resources. And this, on the surface, doesn't seem like that to me. They've got Andrew Garfield as, like, a lead role in it. So I can't imagine it being, like, a limited budget. Yeah. But it has that look and that aesthetic of something that was very cheaply done. And it reminds me how razor-thin the line is between being clever as a satire and being profoundly stupid. Mm-hmm. And this film leans very much into the profoundly stupid line. I hated this film, Zeke. Do you think it was shot like on a smartphone deliberately, maybe? or? Um, well, it, it's not all shot on a smartphone, but like just sort of that, that LA palm tree aesthetic, but mm. it, just seemed, it just seemed really cheap. Like the angles were really boring and flat, and yeah, half the film shot on an iPhone. To sort of mimic that, like there's a lot of like diegetic video playback where mm. you're watching something unfold, but half of the scene is has the little YouTube layouts on top of it, and you've got the little bar at the bottom mm. playing through. So it, it plays into that, and every now and then they'll sort of have the same frame repeat over and over again, kind of like you're, you know, tapping a button, like tapping seven for the same frame to play over. And oh, it looks like he's humping the floor. Like it, it does little things like that to show the, the whole Web 2.0 interactivity side mm. of it. But just because it does little things like that doesn't excuse horrible pacing, horrible, um, I guess, cause and effect. A lot of things are brought up, go nowhere. Things happen for no reason. Mm-hmm. So you have, you meet Andrew Garfield in this, and he's sort of this, he actually reminds me a little, he's like a Russell Brand-esque like, speaker and thinker. He expresses ideas. Okay. But he's also, like, very much like, I don't want to touch phones. Um, you know, it's like crack cocaine. And they sort of delve into it a little bit with some of the more surrealistic shots of, like, Maya Hawke with glitter on her face and sort of going into that empty void cinematography thing, which I like the little hints of that there mm. in terms of phones being addictions. But then he just turns around and he's like, okay, I'm happy to be in your videos. Absolutely no motivation for this change at all. This happens several times throughout the film where things just happen. You have scenes where, you know, she's sort of broke and working at this bar and, and just off screen. She's like, oh, I had to sell my car, by the way, to pay rent. But then as we dive into this online world where, you know, they're getting views and people are recognizing him and they're talking to Jake Paul and all this other crap, they just it never gets brought up. It's like, are, are they wealthy now? Is she still struggling to pay rent? Is this <laughs> going to be brought up? These parental issues they have where, like, her father has passed away and she's always trying to get her mum's approval is that ever going to come up past the first act i guess not just like a lot of weird bad first draft decisions Mm -hmm. 
and I like half. I was I was I I very rarely you know this like I very rarely quit on a film. Yeah. And I really struggled to get to the end of this one because it was just I couldn't stand it. I just could not stand it. And you you know me. I'm not usually this negative on films. Yeah. Especially ones that aren't like what's the word? I would think seeing this on Netflix, for example, I rented it off YouTube. I actually feel insulted that I spent seven bucks just to watch it. Yeah. <laughs> I felt really bad because you, you want your drink to cringe films. You know, you want your, um, what's his name? The guy that is in all the crap films. Oh, Noah Santiago. Yeah, that's it. Like you had, there's an expectation there. Yeah. And this film, that expectation wasn't there. I was just shocked. I was like punched in the face at mm. how much I did not like this. Especially film when you pay all. eight bucks. Cause then it's like return on investment. So, the anger definitely can compound yeah. that frustrated. Well, we need to find a way to make $8 off this podcast. Otherwise, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> <laughs> um, start yeah, you a fundraiser page. I know, we should. reimbursed for it. I really should have watched Tick, Tick, Boom instead because this was awful. It reminded me, there were scenes where Andrew Garfield goes on like big extended rants about social media and that. And he goes on this big rant about Coldplay. And at one point, it reminded me of The Fanatic. It genuinely did. When people make fun of John Travolta's performance mm. and that, it's like, I'm getting the same energy here. <laughs> uh, I don't like to be this negative, but I severely disliked mainstream. Very disappointed with it. But You're hoping it doesn't stick around in the mainstream. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. I hope it stays away forever into mm. obscurity. Yeah, no worries. I'm well, just, I'm just angry now. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, so I've just continued my run of watching multiple shows at one time and sort of moving along that timeline. I'm now getting to the end of Parks and Recreation. Very nice. Um, towards the end of the first season, as I've now discovered a Cowboy Bebop's live adaptation. And it's really interesting. I just want to add on top of that discussion with mainstream and this sort of over, and I talked a little bit about with my big critiques of He's All That, these movies centered around social media, whether it be from a fame or a high school point of view, where these characters, all they do is social media is their life. And mm. I think it's strange now because the market has become overly saturated with that discussion on, on, on social media ethics or obsession or it's uh, almost drug-like inducement now. I think mm. it, we're well aware of it. And things like the overlay integration and stuff, it's like, it's not as if, that medium or that way of telling a story can't be compelling because, you know, you tie it back to the, another John Woo film, you know, with Searching and how compelling that film yeah. is. Because they, um, they use that as a, as a form of investigation. It's a very unique yeah. way that actually celebrates technology. Yeah. And it's like, I think, you know what? I think people are just sick of not only people bashing technology, but doing it the same way every time. I'm, I'm my yeah. film Disconnected is the same thing. It doesn't really say much else than what a lot of other films have said i can admit mm. that but your film but, also came out now nearly three years ago yeah 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 yeah. that's so. true and I, and I, look there are little things in there that i'm i'm proud of like i like the whole like them the two noticing they're listening to similar songs on spotify and sort of inferring how that relationship is built there's little things i put in there that i'm like i'm still happy mm-hmm. or proud of that little like writing beat but the whole you're right the text overlay the little speech bubbles coming up on the screen like it's done to death. Yeah, it just it and it's it's just not compelling or interesting. It's, it's the equivalent of um, these films also stacking in YouTube streaming celebrities and and your Jake Pauls or whatever the f- you know. He was want. in mainstream, 
That's what I mean. It's like why? It's not interesting. <laughs> it's like Free Guy did it, and it was just cringy. It's like I don't care of all these famous streamers, and they want that eight-year-old who watches that stream, and it's it's fascinating. Now we live in this world where. People can watch four-hour streams of people navigating through menus, and that's not boring, but they can't sit through a 90-minute film. It's just, we live in this confusingly contradictory world where either we have to have micro-doses of videos through TikToks, or we can watch five-hour streams with nothing happening, mm. um, and just people basically watching people react, and um, yeah, it's just really frustrating, because uh, they're not interesting. It's should be a thank you next if someone comes up with that idea now. Oh, let's tell most of our narrative through the use of all of these internet browsers and stuff. Because, mm. And, of course, YouTube's totally okay with it because it's just more publicity for them, you know? Not that they yeah. need any more publicity. See, even something like Unfriended, mm. it was a straight-up horror film using technology. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was still bashing technology, but it was like, that was something somewhat interesting. And... That film also has the the uh, the plus side of it being super accurate, yeah. like the actual interfaces and and all of that. While, I mean, films like Mainstream, it's like they're using a YouTube outlay layout that looks 10, 15 years old. Yeah. It's like this film could have come out in two thousand five, and it would have felt more like I th- believable. I think it's also the the stance. So like Unfriended's clearly using the much like Searching, it's using the atmosphere and the, and the the world. Um, to tell a story that's, you know, utilizes it to its strengths. It's not trying to make some big political statement about how social media is obsessive and it's controlling yeah, our lives. It's, it's telling either a horror story or a detective story. It's not a social media story. Yeah. Like it, it it's it's like we using know what the impacts it as are. a medium to tell a different story. And it works both ways. It's not even just in film fiction, it's in film nonfiction. We don't need another social dilemma. We don't need another one yeah. of these social yeah. animal films, these films that come out we're aware young people are absolutely indoctrinated by social media. I mean, and it's and it controls our lives. I don't need another documentary to come out and remind me of that now. <laughs> it's like Take Fire. It talked about social media a lot, but it talked about it from like the perspective of how that influenced a whole festival. Yeah, yeah. It's, it was part of a bigger story. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, yeah. So I've been, uh, like I said, continuing both watching those shows, and I've started. Season five mm. of F is for Family, which for some reason dropped in the last week. Yeah, yeah. I apologize for not reading out last week. I had no idea. And then mm. the trailer came up on my YouTube. I was like, oh, cool. The new season has a trailer. And then, oh, it's out right now. Because yeah. <laughs> I was surprised. Because you, I, I had to go back and double check because I was like, I oh, know he didn't bring this up on the show. Because you yeah, like no, F is for I, Family. I would have mentioned it if I no. knew. I just, I didn't know. No. So obviously F is for Family <laughs> is the... If I scroll down my document, it's here. There's an apology for not mentioning it last week. Yeah. I'll just get rid of that now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we don't need it anymore. Um, obviously, you know, we've talked about it on the show. I think we pretty much watched season four on this show. Um, I think. Yeah, God, when was that? That would be, it would have to be about a year or so ago, a year and a half ago. Yeah. Oh, say. man, I wish I... No, um, that's fine. But, uh, obviously, with that finishing, I've watched the first three episodes of the new season. I started watching it today. Mm. It's funny. It's it's very... It picks right up from where season four ends. Nice. Um, I think at this... Obviously, we've, they've now confirmed this is the last season of the show. At this point, it's... You know, it's pretty much probably got... It's probably the right time for it to head on out, I think. Okay. I think five seasons for a show is... It's healthy. Healthy. Yeah. I think... Five to sevens, I think, the magic number 
I mean, yeah. Parks and Rack only has seven. And I think that that's actually perfect because I don't... And Nugo only had seven. So it's like... And what I've liked about those lengths is it hadn't felt like they were staying longer just so, you know, a bit more money or a bit more of a career time. I mean... Yeah, yeah. It, I, I like Bojack ending at six, even though now that we know the full story, it's like that, that last season should have been two seasons. Yeah. But even so, I like the magic number of five, six, seven. You're right. Yeah, I think that's the real golden sort of time because it's like, I love ten the ten seasons. Nine or ten seasons of How I Met Your Mother. Um, but you probably could like shrink parts of that. Right, sure. Definitely down to a solid seven. Community only six. It's fantastic. It's great. It doesn't overstay its welcome. So, okay. um, and yeah, the movie. Yeah, well, <laughs> at this point, it's like, to say Bill Burr is just a comedian is probably wrong now. It's I think he's pretty fairly oh, grounded no. in the the acting realm. He's definitely an so. actor and, and I guess a com- well, I mean comedic writer of course, but like an animation yeah. television writer. Yeah. Laura Dern's so funny in that show too. I forget. That's a great cast. I always forget how good yeah. the cast is. Yeah. And Justin Long. Justin Long. Long yeah. is really <laughs> funny. So um yeah, it still makes you laugh. It's um, if you've liked the earlier seasons of that show, which some people just have never gotten around that show, I don't know why. I think I think it's not to bring the word mainstream back, and I hate to do it. Just the association now, it's going to kill me. But I think most people just don't really know about that show. Yeah. Like I'm always surprised when I bump into someone who's seen Epis for Family. Yeah. It definitely gets lost in the Netflix shuffle because I think, especially in terms of the. I've, it's kind of crazy because I've talked about, I think almost in over the last couple of months, multiple different animated shows. I mean, Close Enough is is pretty great from like, you know, JC Quintal. Big Mouth is really popular in that sort of mainstream. Yeah, I don't know if I would like Big Mouth. I'm not a fan. I've seen a couple episodes. I don't really like, I don't think Nick Kroll's that funny, but that's just me. Right. Um, it's, it's a lot of gross out humor, isn't it? Yeah, it's not my, my cup of tea. I know that people really like that um that other one that's come out. Um, Sex Education? That's not a No, cartoon, the but... animated one. Oh, I'm going to get it now. It looks like a weird sort of CIA sort of... I've seen it on there. Oh, okay. Get the one it. I think of is... um. Is it Enchanted? It's that Matt Enchant- Groening one. That oh, one, that one's... A couple of episodes. I wasn't a huge fan of it. I'm sure it... Actually, you know what? I haven't spoken to anyone who like really likes that show. A lot of people are just like, eh, it's okay. Nothing special. Yeah. Futurama, though. Oh, my God. Futurama, probably, for how chaotic the release schedule was with them being cancelled, excuse me, and then having the movies, and then... Inside Job. Is what I'm oh, I've heard of Inside Job, yeah. Mm. so that's sort of another so they they do have quite an array of um i also watched um one of the covid specials for south park because oh that's a new thing isn't it yeah because there's only because they're ending south park so oh i did not know that so it's these last these 12 um sort of feature length episodes holy um, crap in which the latest one i watched is um so they had one of how all of the main four characters reacted to COVID. And then the one that followed <laughs> this was That's in the funny. future, where they're all grown up. Oh, wow. Yeah. Holy crap. I didn't hear about any of this. And it's... I'm just seeing if any of these feature-length South Park movies are on Letterboxd. Oh, there's a few of them. Yeah, so Let's start logging. From what I recall, friend of the <laughs> friend of the show, um, Liam, recounted there's 12 of them. There's going to be 12. Wow, okay. Um, so there's South Park, the pandemic special from 2020. There's the va- the vaccination special from 2021. Yeah, so I and think then... there's going to be a collection of them. 
Untitled South Park Movie 2. Yeah. Which is still slated for 2021. They don't have much time left, Zeke. (laughs) But this is it. This is going to be the last lot of South Park episodes. That's incredible. I did not hear that. So. That's um, sad. It's funny. But yeah, it definitely is kind of sad. Yeah. I've never been like a huge addict for South Park. I always like kind of the best part about them is the ability to just check in on them. Yeah. And have a laugh at an episode and then check out them. Um, But it's is kind of crazy to think that like when I was told that this is it for them, I was like, Oh wow. That does feel like an end of an era thing, you know? Yeah, no. Well, I mean they, what they premiered in 98, something like yeah. that. So we we're both barely, yeah. I mean, we were both like zero. So 20, it'll be 25 <laughs> years. I think when they're done, that's nuts. So, I mean, that's a fantastic, you speak of five, six season long runs. Yeah. That's a fantastic. Yeah, they've pushed run. I think 22 or 23 seasons. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I know like, is it a quality thing? I know people have different opinions about the serialized stuff that they started doing more of. Yeah, like some people like the the, the story driven stuff, and some people don't. Yeah, yeah. Um, we had a full debate about it on Saturday when we were watching the special. I like the serialized stuff, but okay, um, I do understand why people kind of like the the, the just because it's based on the the turnaround so quick. I think it's just like everything. You, you get to a point where you might be creatively stale. I mean. That's a big debate with Simpsons, right? That they should oh, have God, finished yeah. years ago. Years and years and years ago. It's uh, funny because I know some people are like, oh, it's starting to get good again, the season 32 or whatever. Yeah. I watched, this is a good way to put it, put it, because I was on Discord, this was weeks ago now, with a few friends, and you can actually just put on Disney Plus through Discord, and there's no like blockage or anything. It just works. Okay. So we watched two Simpsons episodes. We watched Radioactive Man, which is season seven. So Prime, maybe a year after Prime, but still like, well before the, you know, Armin period of, oh boy, what's happening? Um, excellent, excellent, hilarious episode. Mm-hmm. We watched an episode from season uh, 30 or 31 when Lisa goes on a sleepover with some friends and she brings like a pony and everyone else is on their phones. Another phone bashing episode. And I swear to God, it felt like a 70 minute episode. It just went on and on and on. It was the most boring thing I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know what happened to that show. But I don't. it sounds like South Park sort of dodged that bullet. Yeah, and I think it comes back to if, if the only debate is what way of storytelling, but it still makes you laugh, I mm, think then that's, yep. the, that's definitely the way to go. But um, it, it was a pretty funny episode um, that I watched. So I definitely will probably slowly go through and watch all of those. Um, but it's the best part with South Park is how you can pick up an episode from like, See, we were talking about how you pick up an episode from pretty much any point in the show and it still makes you laugh. Yeah, for sure. Because of the, the return to... So that's a big pay, you know, for Trey Parker and Matt Stone. That's big, big coup. But I think it's like everything. It's like with Seth MacFarlane with Family Guy. They just get to a point where they're just done. Yeah, I think for me... I'm sure we've talked about it before. For me, uh, Family Guy gets pretty mediocre pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I, I like up to about season 10. Myself. Okay, yeah. So See I, uh, that for me, like Simpsons, I still love everything up to like the early twenties, mm. which is absurd to a lot of people. But I, I still love a lot of like the season nineteen stuff. Yeah. But for me, Family Guy's like once you get in, like season five, like it just stops being hilarious for me. Yeah. No, definitely still. Yeah, I, 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 I think I have yeah. the first seven seasons on DVD. So. Right. Yeah. Cool. I appreciate the production value, like the Star Wars spinoffs, and the yeah. you know, and then the, there were fewer, which was like an hour long. Especially with James Woods gets killed and like I, I like the the um 
not attention to detail, but like those episodes feel really grand. Yeah. Like a lot of efforts put into them, which the, I appreciate. The Brian and Stewie time travel stuff's pretty funny. Yeah, so. that's a great example of like yeah. the latest season. Those work. Yeah. Those really work, but yeah. No, it definitely has repetition in it too. But it's interesting, like the, the key to a successful show, I think, is not overstaying your welcome. So it's it's cool that, and when someone can see that they're out of all original ideas and they're ready to wrap the show up and they, they're happy to stick their hands up and just let it slowly peter out. And I think this is a really clever, they've taken this, in the South Park vein, they've taken this real life scenario and they've ter- like they've talked about the divisive between the four friends and how they responded to COVID yep, and yep. the vaccination stuff. And it's completely severed their friendship. And That's interesting. The, the, the next one, the one I watched recently, is about them reuniting as a group under the the mysterious death of one Kenny. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> They killed Kenny? Yeah. Oh, my God. Um, what was I going to say? It's, it's like the plot to Civil War through to Endgame. Yeah. I'll be very surprised if he's actually dead. Like they're they're claiming this is like like in the episode they're framing it like he's permanently dead. Uh, like, as, like when they killed Brian for two episodes and then brought him back. Yeah, but it's, happy I, Christmas, the, everyone. Kenny, the Kenny one's way more self-aware. I guess so. I guess so. They really nailed that home with South, with Family Guy when they killed Brian for literally two weeks. Yeah, they really tried <laughs> to convince you. Crazy. Uh, oh, well, that's all I've got. Uh, did you want yeah. to add anything to your career section of um, the show? No, no, last week's been pretty chill. Well, can't talk about it, can I? Yeah. <laughs> I really shouldn't talk about it. Um, nothing has happened this week, Zeke. Nothing has happened. Nothing at all on this episode. Yeah, I've been enjoying my week off. I'm free. That's good. I'm cruising. You're I'm having a great bird. time. It's Life's good. Nice. So it's time for us to move into our film of the week for the 150th episode, the Woo! 30th Director's Corner. But Woo! Jake, what are we watching and who's the director? Of course, we're talking about Steven Spielberg. Sing your Spielberg from The Simpsons. <laughs> Another classic episode. This week we're talking about Jaws. Most people get attacked by sharks in three feet of water, about ten feet from the beach. You're gonna need a bigger boat. A police chief, a marine scientist, and a fisherman spring into action after a white shark. White shark? Shouldn't that be great white shark? Terrorizes um, the inhabitants of Amini, a quiet island. Why do you live on an island if you're afraid of the water? It's actually if, a very valid point. I don't know if that's a line, but... Well, he says he's uh, if it only feels like an island if you're on the beach. But then he lives on the beach. Yeah. He lives in a beach house. You can I think see the jetty it, from his bedroom. because <laughs> even the premise of this sounds very Hitchcockian. Like, all of this yeah. bad stuff has to happen on an island. It's very birds-esque. Um, it's very Hitchcockian. And it's funny because I could have done this as my fun fact, but I remember him... There's an article of him talking about, like, ah, oh, that shark film, ah. Uh. But 
that wasn't diminishing the film. It's because he did a voice for the Universal ride and got paid like a million dollars to do a voice. Mm. And he kind of feels almost slutty to Steven Spielberg. <laughs> I wouldn't. I would be like, hell yeah, let's go. Yeah. Cha-ching. <laughs> He's definitely a, like out of his films, and we're going to talk about it. I think that this film has probably had next to every an analyst at like at, you know has been analyzed oh, of to course, death yeah um we will talk about the film but obviously this being a director's corner mm. and being the 30th director's corner and Very possibly special about one. one of the most profound directors of the the last half century mm. um i think it's it's really interesting to talk about him and what sort of the uh, this early career um of films particularly his 70s films um, yeah, well, this was one of his first features. I've seen Jewel, which was the uh, the truck film. We watched that in school, of all places, mm. um, which I think is a few years predates that. It's very similar to Jaws. It's just a truck, not a shark. <laughs> this is the film that, obviously... But it's, it's early, yeah, it's very early. Like you said, it's synonymous with the birth of the, the, the summer blockbuster, yep. which has been a thing that has stood the test of time. You know, Obviously, we still have summer blockbusters. It's a huge part of the year, that mid-year push yeah, for your yeah. big, ridiculously Michael Bay-esque films. Um, obviously, have come a long way since this film mm. about a broken-down motorized shark. Um, <laughs> no, but obviously... Hey, if it works, it works. It, <laughs> it brings the money it in, yeah. It doesn't trap George Lucas's head in it. Um, <laughs> it's, oh, but it is quite a miraculous career when you think about it. Mm. The, the diversification of, of genres... Um, and I think the thing that has always stuck with me when I look at his filmography is is just how many hits he had over such a long continuation of time. The fact that he was producing, you know, objectively quality films for at least four consecutive decades, the 70s, mm. 80s, 90s, and, and the aughts, and only under, started undergoing the, the shift in the, the turn of the, the 2010s where... Start, you know, the quality, some of his films became a bit more samey. You know, I have my critiques of The Post, for instance. Right, of course. Um, so, films like The Post and um, Lincoln, I haven't seen, or Bridge of Spies, I haven't seen many of yeah. those. The only film other than Ready Player One, of course, I've seen of his in the last decade is probably one of my favourites in, in Tintin. Tintin yeah. is absolutely brilliant. That's in the aughts, though. No, it's so, 2011. What? It's oh. 2011. Ah, <laughs> So, but but you're right. Get, that turn is that turn is definitely the switch. Yeah. Yeah. Well, really? I swear I saw that earlier than that. It's crazy. I yeah, love it's Tintin. Tintin's great. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah. It is a really good film. Um, and it, like like we were gonna say, you know, like the diversification between live action and animation. Mm. Um, yeah, it's true. You know, but it, only yeah, probably since Tintin hasn't. You know, Bridge of Spies and The Post still have pretty decent ratings on Letterboxd, but. They're they're definitely almost losing that that almost aura that he had for the longest time. And yeah, I think well, they're a bit I, more divisive. I, and I don't a bit think more samey. I've never seen anyone be like, "Oh, the post is incredible." It's obviously going to be compared to things like Spotlight at the time, which I think it's I haven't seen the post, but better. yeah, it's clearly a better film. Significantly better. Um, but I think you're right. Like, and we talked about this, the, the effect he has over all these decades, and we've di- we did ET on the show. It wasn't a director's corner, but you know, we did, and we talked a bit about his. Mm legacy in that film and even then that's an 80s film absolutely brilliant yeah et i mean this film re-watching jaws i was like i what like i said i watched it a couple of years ago for the first time 
knowing it was good, I was like, I really appreciate this. The camera work is really great. I love the, yeah. the way he builds tension. The script is brilliant, and we can get into that. But rewatching it today, I was like, this is like a masterpiece. Jaws is so good. Yeah. And then we talk about, you know, you, you adore Schindler's List. Well, I would argue that the 90s are his best decade. Yeah, wow. Um, between that and Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, well, that that's it. That's where he leans into the much more serious films yeah. that really want to break into your core. Like, Indiana Jones is a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, Tintin's a lot of fun. E.T. is, is charming and has heart. But it doesn't, like, rip your rip you to your core, in a way, mm-hmm. that either of those two much more serious films do. Yeah, and it's definitely it's a, kind of an interesting um, evolution because, yeah, mm. these, these blockbuster films in the 70s, they were... I mean, they're, they're kind of a bit more... Uh, like, he went from that, and then he slowly morphed into the more science fiction stuff with, like, Close Encounters and E.T. Jurassic and then, Park, yeah. And then moved, yeah, moved more into the... Back into the action-adventure stuff. And, yeah, I've even forgot about that. That's a 90s yeah. film. I'm sorry, the 90s is just... And it's, <laughs> it's been so... De- you you could make an argument for his best decades, especially between the 70s, 80s, and 90s. There's a firm yeah, argument yeah. for all three decades. Yeah, absolutely. Which is fantastic. And I mean, even the, the, by the time he got to the aughts, you know, he still got Catch Me If You Can. Great film, yeah. A, you know, it's probably one of my easy, most easy-watching easy films. It's just so much fun from start to finish. I remember going into it, and it would have been during the podcast at some point. It might have been a year ago, actually, when I first yeah. watched it. I was shocked, because I, I knew it was Spielberg, but it was like, ah, oh, it's mid-Audie Spielberg, and you know, it seems like a bit of fun. I've seen the Simpsons parody of this, you know, and then I was like, this is... Excellent. This is yeah. so well done. It's probably my favourite, if not, like, one of, if not my favourite Leonardo DiCaprio performance. Wow. Yeah. No, he's, he's great just, in it. He's, he's great in it. perfect. Like, I think their pairing, that's probably my favourite pairing with Tom Hanks, too. Like, for him in a movie. Of course, yeah. Um, because um, I like Tom Hanks, but I'm not as, like, red hot on him as other, other people are. Right. But I think he's complimented really well. That's kind of the perfect, I mean, that and... It's a great role for him, juxtaposed with... Well, you know, the cocky Leonardo DiCaprio. And- yeah, I think between that and his casting in Private Ryan with Matt Damon. So those two mm. pairings were like my favourite pairings he'd ever had. So Spielberg, I think, casts him the best. Um, yeah, because I'm looking at this. He's not really in any other Spielberg films. Bridges, he's in The Post, he, isn't he? He's in a lot. After The Post, Saving Private Ryan, he's in Bridge four. Of Spies. Bridge of Spy at- and The Post. Well, okay, that's interesting. But then, yeah, you go for the 70s, 80s, 90s. Oh, but then he's in the terminal. You're right. He's in a ton of Spielberg films. Yeah. My, that's he, my bad. They have like a, a serious love relationship post. <laughs> post. Uh, what do I say? Right. He doesn't work with Tom Hanks. Jesus Christ. Yeah. You need to fact check me more often. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about the terminal too. That's the orts. Yeah, that just came up on on this sheet here. I still haven't seen it. Charming. But, um, it's a charming, fun film. Yeah. No, it looks like looks nice. I just I, he's such a tough director. To it's funny because they always go, oh, J.J. Abrams is like baby Spielberg, but it's like they're not even comparable. No, they're not on the same level at all. Like, I enjoy Super 8 as like, I saw it when I was a 10-year-old kid trying to make movies and I I appreciated the relatability. But then like Star Wars, I mean, he completely shit the bed by the end of the trilogy. And yeah, I, I, I see where the inspiration comes from. Yeah. But in terms of just a quality standpoint, like, no, it's a, it's a whole nother level. I mean, mm. Spielberg has such a precision. And I remember watching something like Muriel's Wedding and being like, this feels like a Spielberg film in the sense of it's how precise the camera work is in that film and the edit and just how how mm-hmm. fast everything moves. And I think that's what's so interesting about Jaws 
is you know we call it the the, the first blockbuster and at the end of the day it's because of the money it's because a lot of people saw it and it had like a nine million dollar budget it made like 470 million back it's about the money but <clears throat> i think there's a lot about the film itself that yeah leans towards it being such a great audience film because you have that water cooler effect of like oh my god this film's really scary you're never going to swim in the ocean again you have sort of that 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 hype machine around it but then the film itself is obviously it's a horror film so you're getting an audience that's scared and enthralled and then slowly turns into an action film mm-hmm. in the second half you have uh, obviously you've got your trademark humor i love when um the wife's like, oh, lay off the kid, and then looks at the the thing of the shark eating the boat, and like, get off the boat! Like, it's got those little trademark humor mm. bits, but I think what makes it really special as well is you have, first off, the, it's a really fast-paced film. Mm. Like, a lot happens. You can compare it to The Exorcist, which was very close, only a year or two earlier, from yeah. memory, where that film, half the runtime of The Exorcist is, is them figuring out what's wrong with Reagan. Like, what what's actually the horror here? We don't understand it. Mm-hmm. In this film, it's like, no, everyone knows from the very beginning, oh, it's a shark. There's yeah. a shark out there. So, immediately the plot's moving at a rapid pace. So, things are happening and it gets you excited and then things start building up and building up. I think the film itself is structurally a perfect blockbuster film because it really is geared towards getting an audience... On a roller coaster ride of emotions yeah. that they just pitched to and everyone. If you definitely look at his earlier career, that was kind of pretty much the formula for at least the first two decades mm. for him. It wasn't. Uh, I was. I was think that when he took that serious shift in the nineties with with films like Schindler's List and Saving Private Ryan, The Color Purple, it's like what these earlier decades were. Were they almost were that? Um, and it, it definitely comes across particularly in things like ET and Close Encounters that sense of wonderment, mm. um, but also, and that perfect balance between, sure, yeah, the films have got serious subject matter, but they kind of feel like they come from the imagination of a child. Right. Um, yeah. Like, obviously this has taken, like, like it does have that Hitchcockian sort of shell to it with the whole sort of uh, man versus nature horror side to mm. it, yeah. But at the end of the day, it is a shark terrorizing a group of people. Yeah, um, yeah. On paper, it sounds very silly. Yeah. But you're right. It's very Hitchcockian that it it it, it works in a way where you buy it. Yeah. And I think I think the front is the sort of the romanticized, innocent thing. It's very, I guess, a Lynch thing if you want to even bring it into mm. that. Where the opening scene is a bunch of teens getting drunk on a beach. You know, mm. it's romantic and sexy and mysterious, and then all the families come in, and it's all very innocent you have you know his son cuts his hand and doesn't care he's like well, the, ah, the introduction is almost very carpenter-esque it's like talking about horny mm. teenagers being punished for their almost their sins which yeah um, even just structurally the way they introduce the threat is similar yeah yeah, yeah. um POV the POV shots, POV shots. Yeah, yeah. yeah um and obviously you know we got to talk about william's like motif um the it's brilliant it is brilliant um but it, it's interesting because uh, it definitely does take that uh, that that tonal shift, but um, obviously, then when preceding this film, he morphs into like Close Encounters and ET and and Indiana Jones, where all those films do have they all build to really big final set pieces, and obviously this yep. one, due to obviously having one of the most modest budget, probably the most modest budget for in the Spielberg, probably film, yeah. The end scene is still dramatic, but it is essentially it's three guys 
versus shark on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> like it's... But but he makes it exciting and this is why yeah. As a director, I have to imagine... And I'm pretty... He didn't even get the directing knob. I remember that was a big controversy. He didn't get the directing knob that... Even as Jules was nominated for a hundred other things. But he's... What he did with, you know, like you said, the shark film, it's immaculate. Like, again, the camera work, the way he gets you to care about these three characters in particular, and making the shark scary, despite all the problems, despite the fact that they struggled to get the thing to even work most of the time, that mm. he resorted into creating a lot of suspense around not seeing the shark, using POVs and musical cues and all those things to allude to that danger and that fear. And the first time we really get a good look at the shark is like an hour and 15 minutes in the film. It's well past the midpoint, which is, I don't know, it's fascinating. But to your point of like building to an exciting climax, I noticed that this time. I was like, the midpoint is not some sort of surprise plot twist or, or any sort of reintroduction of new stakes. It's the same story, but what he does is um, instead, it, it essentially goes from the defense into the offense. From we need to protect the kids from the shark to, all right, we're going to go out into the water ourselves and kill this thing. And I think that's where the genre changes from a horror film to an action film. Yeah. Which I think is a perfect place to put it, right in the midpoint. Yeah. I think that's, um, that's, that's pretty perfect. I mean, I, I definitely think that other films of the time in the same sort of like, Obviously, I first thing one of the first springs of mind is like Alien, how they go yes. from being like the 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 hunted to the hunters, um, and that shift in the last twenty minutes when you know like um, Ripley and stuff like then start to go on, and the the remaining crew start to go on the offensive against the alien. Yeah, um, because it be, it doesn't become an unknown; they know what is hunting them um, pretty early on in that film too. So mm, yeah. Um, they're just unaware of what the capabilities are. And I, I definitely think that that shift is, and then it becomes definitely the last 20 minutes of more action survival sort of film. Yeah. Um, and this does it definitely too. Um, it's still one of my favorite shots in cinema when Schneider's there, like shoveling the chum That's out. That's it. That's the one. Yeah. And the shark just comes burling in. It's brilliant. And like you as an audience are so not disassociated, but like, You've let your guard down at this point because the, you know you, you're on the boat and they're you know having fun and we're starting to learn a bit of the uh, the dynamic between um, you know Quint and uh, I think it's Matt Matt Hooper, yeah. um, Dreyfus and Robert Shaw's characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and you know their com- camaraderie, I guess, mm. and and going out and the, the regularities of that trip. It comes at the perfect time of like, oh crap, it's right here, right now. Let's go. Yeah. That's a great reveal. It's a, you know, it's a good way of balance, bringing it back to that, that horror action style too. Mm. Um, um, and he definitely does do those lulls really well, like where in other films, like he does it quite a few times in Indiana Jones when it goes from the sort of investigatory pacing of mm. look, checking out these monuments to, oh no, but then the action's springing on you, there's Nazis there dun, hunting dun, you down. Dun, yeah. dun, but it's the dun, same dun, sort of balance. Yeah. It's that it's that calm, storm, calm, storm thing. And you, you only rewatched it very recently. Oh like, God, just... Raiders. <laughs> so good. It's not even my favorite of the the four though. Like really, I'm, or is, yeah. your, is the third your favorite? Yeah, Last wow. Crusade. Nice. I'm a Last Crusade person. Yeah, cool. Um, I, I I look I, Sean Connery's ethical side <laughs> side. Um, it's a really funny dynamic. No, I appreciate like that. Two very grumpy men <laughs> just going back. And oh forth. my god, you're right. You're, uh, you're so right with Harrison Ford. So there. they're kind of perfectly cast. <laughs> I, I, Spielberg probably does have one of the best natural casting abilities, and I know that's probably to do with having a really strong council of people around him too. 
Um, I know it's not explicitly always going to be him. I think, you know, we, we, we talked about a little bit at the start of the show with my fact, but their network of people that they had mm. in the 70s, um, this group of just iconic directors and, and not even just the directors, their, their co-writers and their, the group that they clearly had knew what they were looking for. And then yeah. they had this whole new generation of actors plus, plus you know, gen, like this cast... It's actually a really mature cast when you think about it. Well, I, that was my thought, especially this time, because since watching it last time, we did The Sting. And yeah. like, how in the hell does did make they get appreci- Robert Shaw in this film? Does it make you appreciate Robert Shaw on a different level now it that you've watched The Sting? It completely does. Yeah, he's this so film? good, like, respectively in both those films. Yeah. He, he plays, like, like obviously he's a more refined, grisly person in, in The Sting, but the drunken... That monologue yeah, that he gives is just... And it's I, I it's crazy to think that like only a couple of years later he passed away. Like he died in seventy eight. So yeah, wow. this is probably one. I mean the two. That's sad. You look at his billings. They're, they're, the sting and this are his two top billings. Yeah. Of so, course. um, it's kind of interesting when you you see that, and uh, you know even like Dreyfus and, and Schneider. It's like really interesting because it's like it is a relatively mature cast compared to what Spielberg would go into. Obviously, Close Encounters. He has. The two major casting in that are, are still they're both paternal characters. Mm. Um, but then we move into the Indiana Jones E to the eighties era. He goes to much younger casting. Right. Um, obviously, Harrison Ford wasn't super young, but um, was still relatively yeah. early on. His well, at, career. at that point as well, he was really hot. You know, yeah, Han Solo and everything. So it seemed like a too obvious of a choice in a way. Yeah, but it's worked like, out. Then he yeah. goes straight to kid casting in E T. Yeah. Is there anyone in E T? Surely. Let's find out. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head if there's any like names in ET. Reese Witherspoon, the okay, girl, yeah. Well, like oh, I, I drew Barrymore, drew but, Barrymore. but she was Sorry. she was a child at the time. Yeah. So yeah, no, nah, it's fascinating. No, they're kind of all unknowns, weren't they? Yeah, which I think speaks to how beautiful that film is because it really that adds to the whole. It was his pet project mm. thing. Like it's not on the same scale as as indie or or Jurassic Park or anything like that. I think it's. Uh, if anything, he's, the the thing that is the biggest is is when you discuss him is to discuss the the kind of the network of particularly people behind the camera that were constant working with him, like his relationship with John Williams and um, like this network that really built this foundation that has lasted decades. I mean, mm-hmm. in fact, the Williams they're both well into their seventies now. You know, we we just talked about this film came out in nineteen seventy five, and he's turning seventy five in like two weeks. So it's like, that's a nice little nifty... More fun uh, facts with Zeke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's the fact that if you see his name, his name is so like iconic. Even it's like with the Ready Player One, there was hype just around the fact that he was doing it. And hit or miss that that film is, it's a miss. Right. But to, you know, it's just fascinating. That well, it's a similar thing with the West Side Story that he's doing now. It's, oh, wow. Spielberg's doing his take on it. That's Spielberg, isn't it? Mm. Doing West Side Story? Might be correct. It comes out in like a month or two. So the story is... Nope, it's directed by Steven Spielberg. Oh, there it is. Nice. Released on Boxing Day this year. Oh, wow. So that's soon. Yeah, yeah it's getting a lot of hype. But it's like even even just speaking to like the, the whole... Well, no one... No, like I wouldn't trust anyone else with that kind of film. Like a yeah. remake of West Side Story, like which is one of the best musical films like right. of all time. You couldn't give that to just some random Joe director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one would be able to be okay with that because the fact that you can still watch the sixty-something version and be like, "That's still 
fantastic from mm-hmm. start to finish. Yeah, it's it's that's that's kind of exciting to see him take on a cla- a, a point in which he when that film came out he would have been just breaking into the film industry. So that's a kind... That's true, really yeah. Good it's mirroring. a nice little turnaround. Well, it's like you said, a lot of his films feel very inner child-like, yeah. you know, in terms of the inspiration, at least. And until his name being like a household name, you know, it, it's the go-to, you know, oh, my child wants to be a filmmaker. He wants to be the next Spielberg. Like, that's the name people drop. And, I, and what I like is it's like, obviously, then he underwent that serious shift in the 90s where he did things like Color Purple and, and Schindler's List and... These films that are still magnificent, probably I would argue his best films of his career, and then brought it back to the the perfect balance between. And then he finds this weird middle ground between the childlike and the super mm-hmm. serious with films like Catch Me If You Can and The Terminal, which yeah, do have very yeah. serious undertones in them, but still have the quirky fun side to them. Quite playful. Yeah, yeah. I think Catch Me If You Can is the most reflexive piece he's done because he and himself could identify perfectly with both Leonardo DiCaprio. And Tom Hanks' characters in that yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. So the, the youthful sort of arrogance, cockiness, anti-authoritarian, and then of course Tom Hanks being the well, the polar opposite of that. Yeah, you know, and I guess there's a frustration that comes with it. It's been and the awesome ending of that, that film, yeah. when you know they end up working together, mm. kind of shows that perfect balance where he's become to as a career. Because at yeah. that point, he'd been in the industry for what 35, 40 years. Yeah. So we it's just like, we just spoiled Catch Me If You Can for our audience. <laughs> fantastic film. Watch it. It's great. It's awesome. Mm. I've st- I've watched that film I think four times in like three years and still wow. find it fun. Wonderful. I've seen it the one time, but it's excellent. It's, it's such a great film. A very easy watch. Yeah. Let's talk about the camera because I think mm. the camera in this film is doing incredible things. It's doing some first first time ever things. Some shots. Yeah. Well. Or at well, least the first ever like some of the first ever takes of. Well, I'll, shots. I'll say this about some of the shots because are you referring to the vertigo shot? In particular, yeah, like the double double stuff. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think because that does originate from, ironically, the Hitchcock film Vertigo. This is easy. Um, the mo- was, but this is the most. This is the most famous use of it. Yeah, easy, the, more so than the film that the shot is literally named after. Mm-hmm. This is the most famous version of that. Yeah, it's the go-to example of what a Vertigo shot represents in a character and in a mood shift and and things like that. Like just complete world-shattering. I mean, that's almost like the end of your first act right there, right at the beginning of the film. Yeah, and this this type of shot now is synonymous with that facial expression and every time you see it in a different film, even films that you just don't even expect to see it in. I remember when they used it in Book Guardians. Smart. I was, I was going oh, oh. to say Guardians 2. Yes, yes, they do use in Guardians 2. Um, yeah. For the, the Star-Lord uh, mother reveal. Yeah. And then... Um, Almost used in like an all an almost identical shock state, and I was like, "But yeah, I remember the book." Yeah, style. book smart does it too. Yeah, God, book smart. Look at it, look at us both having way. different examples of the same shot. Good. We're smart. We're yeah. smart people. We're book smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, Great minds think differently, but still the same. Yeah, Pff, I, I love tried. that film. I try. I gotta go back and rewatch that film. Um, I love book smart. <laughs> yeah. Check Guardi- out that Guardians too. It exists. It exists. I'll say that. It's much. a good film. Um, mm. But yeah, look, it's it, you know, there's that, and then there's the use of the POV, which um, yeah, a lot of shark POVs underwater, especially yeah, which is just a really clever way of of working around budget, but at the same time, created a it was that perfect balance of production context meets uh, cinematic effectiveness because I think he has overtly said in in hindsight, had the shark been working more, you would have seen a lot more of it, mm, which yeah. you could say is a, was a mistake or would have been a mistake, yeah. Yeah. I 100% think it would have been a mistake. I think 
Um, it's the equivalent of overusing CGI, which we see in, you know... Ready Player just, One. Yeah, where it becomes this over-reliance on technology, which, to be honest, the warning flags have always been present, I think, in both Spielberg and Lucas works. They both really well, like... Well, Spielberg did it in E.T. We talked about this. Yes. These all 20th anniversary thing, which... Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's the warning signs that it, it's... um. It's funny because obviously, you know, I, I tell that when I was telling that anecdote at the start of the show, that the fun fact, and they're they're in the company of Scorsese, who couldn't be more adverse to <laughs> visual effects, but then used it for different reasons. You could argue in way more Irish positive thing, yeah. reasons, where he's using it uh, to solely de-age characters. But then you yeah. could argue that that's also not beneficial because you could just cast people to be the younger versions. And yeah, look, I, I mean, to your point, you're right. Scorsese is a bit more. Um careful about his CGI use and things like that. It does look a bit rough in the start of The Irishman, though. Yeah, look, I, I think since... Because when we watched The Irishman for the first time, I hadn't actually seen a lot of young De Niro films then. And then since then, I've watched a ton of young De Niro films. And now I can see it a bit more. Yeah. I can see where... It I think the Pesci is the one that's more uncomfortable for me. Ah, oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Out of the two. But um, his one looks a bit more janky. Yeah, but I'm a, a obsessed with Goodfellas, so it's yeah, like, uh, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but the other examples I want to bring up with the cameras, because yeah, it does like very specific techniques, like we talked about. But what I love, and this is something we looked at, I think in one of our classes as well, particularly mm-hmm. the shot on like that. It's not a, is it a barge? I guess, or it's like this little motorized boat, very early in the film where we pan across as we're following Martin and then the car comes in and then as the barge starts moving. Yeah, it's like a barge ferry. Yeah, and I think that speaks to the film where it's like, yeah, we talk about the camera work, but I think more, almost more so than the camera, I think it's the actual blocking. And there's a lot going on here in terms of um, really clever 40s, 50s techniques of, first off, talkies. Like the dialogue is very quick and overlapping and it reminds me of a 40s, 50s talkie, but also, you know, when I think of something like Anatomy of a Murder from the late 50s, the blocking in that film is really fascinating because of just getting the characters to move around over and over again. Mm-hmm. And the blocking in this film, by having that, having the camera angle change without editing or even moving the camera in any way, just having the environment around it move is sort of ingenious. And I don't, even today, I don't really see that anymore. And then you have, um, yeah, Matt Hooper walking back and forth as like, you know, people are overloading their boats because they want to, you know, obviously get the, the, the reward for, killing the shark and the first first act second act i guess that's, sec- that's, that's second, act, second by now. act yeah, yeah that's, it's far enough in i think but like the way the camera would just pan back and forth and back and forth at the interaction it just keeps the energy going and i mean that's what yeah. this film has behind its back is is just pure energy for dialogue through uh, blocking and the way the camera moves and not so much editing it's editing because like each scene does happen really quickly like we get through the story at a very quick pace not too quick it's not like we're getting a hundred cuts during a typical dialogue scene. Mm. I'm just saying, like, from scene to scene to scene, they happen very briskly and very quickly and don't ever say they're welcome. And I, it creates super energetic feel to the entire film. I think it kind of slows down in the end, which is ironic because it's obviously very action-heavy. But it's like, I notice, like, the last 30, 20 minutes is when things start to slow down. And it's like, I feel like the energy is a little bit lost because now we're in the desperation of finally trying to kill the shark. Mm. In the last leg of the journey. Could be the before the storm, though. Yeah, no, you you do need it. And I, I definitely wouldn't say this film needs to be shorter. It's a perfect smack-bang two-hour yeah. runtime. 
Um, I'm just saying in terms of a very energetic, exciting yeah. pace, you lose a little. That, end, could, that could also come back to things like, once again, pro- like production constraints. Maybe there was a degree that because they couldn't use the shark as much, they had to somehow make the remainder of the story feel more dynamic visually mm. because we couldn't see the shark. So obviously we talked about the POV limiting, but then there's also the parts that if we don't have to constantly cut back to what the shark is because the shark really isn't a character into itself. It's this almost external threat and force that right. up until the very end is more just... But our fear is based off solely off the recountings of, of Dreyfus's character, um, you know, and basically our interactions between all of the characters, between the mayor trying to dismiss everything because... Oh that is um, so sinister. Yeah. When you really break down what he's doing, especially when you're getting people into the water. That's a brilliant shot as well, the wide of like the hundreds of people on the shore, but no one in the water. And then the one person makes a step out. It's almost like, what's a good example? Well, it's not a movie, but like the whole standing in front of the tank mm-hmm. that taking that stand almost like, it reminds me a little bit of that, but it, that's sinister. Like him yeah. sending people out to die in, in the face of fun. And Zeke, this is why I think this film is really an allegory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Leftist propaganda to keep the borders closed. It's an allegory. Saying a lot of controversial Keep things. Keep COVID on this, out of WA. On this, this episode. The Omicron variant is on the way, Zeke. Okay. I'm sorry, I had to get it in there. You did. I forgot to open with it and then I got it in there then. Yeah. It, <laughs> I think that that's what I like the most about it. And maybe that's where a lot of that creativity comes from and the need to keep the pacing. Because if it was more methodical um, and more plotting probably be quite boring i think the the frantic nature of it up until the point where they've more comes from the fact that you know they're trying to you know carry you know the the characters they're trying to realize there actually is a threat because for the longest time it's more a debate up until a certain point especially after they catch that first shark yeah um that the threat's not there and um well they ass- yeah they assume the threat's not there yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think it comes back to um, sort of what like Matt Hooper's character needs to have that sort of phonetic pace because um, up until the point when you know Robert Shaw's character decides to help them, no one believes them in that second. You know, that, a lot of that second act. So yeah, the, well, it's it's. I don't think it's so much that they don't believe him, but like they're resistant to accept what needs to be done to eradicate. And like I. That's why I make my border joke, but it it's comparable. It legitimately is. There is a dangerous threat that is ruining, not ruining, but threatening our way of life. That the people here, well, you know, we have an event to run. We want families and children to continue this this legacy that we have on the 4th of July to have fun and to, to have a good time. And we want to keep that way of life going despite the threat. And, and knowing full well what the threat is, because multiple people have died, but just essentially ignoring it. Be like, oh, we can get away with it. Well, capitalism comes first. Yeah, exactly. As, as a self-proclaimed <laughs> capitalist. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God. But no, I love that whole aspect. And the fact of the matter is, like, in terms of plotting, it's so clever because you have, obviously, they, they put the, um, you know, the, the dollar sign on the shark. Like, oh, what was it, for $3,000? Mm. Like yeah, they put, they put the bounty on the shark, essentially. So as they're trying to close beaches, you have people from all over the place coming... Uh, out of curiosity, but then also out of wanting to to get that bounty mm-hmm. to be a part of that, and I just love sort of the clash that it keeps creating. It feels so natural as well. 
that like oh this leads to this this leads to this this." it's just it's very clever it's very clear and that's why i think the midpoint shift of okay now it's just a hangout free of a film of three guys on a boat trying to kill a shark i think it's really clever because it changes the pacing completely for the for the better i mean yeah yeah it's great i love that whole i think it's a great theatrical experience I think it's very similar to the the shift that happens in Saving Private Ryan from when the first two acts of the film are getting to Ryan. Yeah. And then there's that moment when they land in the town and they know that all the German soldiers... There's a there's actually a good 25, 30-minute lull where <laughs> seemingly is it's more just the, that, that wait for the absolute hellscape that's about to you know, mm. ensue. Yep. And obviously we get some of the most prolific lines from Tom Hanks in that film. And they both actually undergo very similar sort of structures, I believe. Um, obviously, one of them is tonally way more uh, heavy-handed yep. in its <laughs> themes. Um, but but in, in terms of a structure, yeah, yeah, they're very they fit pretty well together. Yeah, and um, I find that really interesting because this film, out of all of um, like all the films that precede this film they're the only two that I like really think have that same sort of pacing. Cause a lot of his other films are more conjunctive with uh stop set piece, stop set piece, stop set piece. Um, Interesting. Okay. And the only one other one that builds as slow, uh, goes at a nice uh, like investigatory pace, then stops and breathes a bit is close encounters. Mm. Um, but all of his films in the eighties, I mean like ET and stuff, they are a lot of like mis- mystery, but when they also have set pieces that quickly divide them up, much like the Indiana Jones films do, it's yeah. investigation set pieces. More a tradition now, what we would consider a traditional blockbuster adventure format, which um, you know obviously films like the Fast and Furious films have significantly their substance, but actually adhere to the same formula, right? A right. formula that was set up by films like this. Yeah, well, it, it's almost a copy and paste thing at that point when yeah. you have so many sequels and it's all fit in that thing of like well that film made money so let's just copy the structure of that film yeah to make that same but money i, I um, think but you're right it all fits together well and the i think an important discussion point of this film is is the legacy that it did it did create this whole genre this genre that to be honest was all about um did have definitely that underlying notion of these are the films that everyone goes to go see that make a lot of money yeah that's kind of the point of them um, and what are, what's the, the perfect formula to encapsulate this entertainment factor? Mm. And we've seen this kind of transcend over into or, or break down into even more subgenres than things like superhero films, which definitely owe a, a lot of their storyline structure to, you know, the skeletal frameworks of films like this. Yeah. Well, it's in terms of sticking to that formula for to make a, a crowd-pleasing experience. Yes. And I think it's interesting that you mention that because... Obviously, we as filmmakers are a lot more hesitant to to praise the Marvel formula for in, in a lot of instances. Like you know, we were talking about Shang Chi off the show a minute ago. Um, that that you know the fact that I liked a lot about what Shang Chi does in terms of themes and sort of representation and things like that. But it was the formula, the thing that we're praising Jaws for in terms of following a formula and, and pleasing an audience. We are criticizing in these Marvel films. And what is the slight tweak? I could just say, well, in Jaws, it's just better. <laughs> it's just better done. But I think that that's kind of a cheap answer, though. I think there's I- a degree of uniqueness. I think, um, although I think that 
this type of genre owes a lot to Spielberg and um, particularly the balance between Spielberg and Lucas too at this time, um, predominantly Spielberg. But it's the fact is the precedent that they set was then just expanded upon or became more derivative yeah. with franchise films um, in which this film did go on and become a franchise unto itself. Yeah, there's a bunch with of other jaws significantly now. diminishing returns. So um, it's funny that these sort of elder statesmen, um, not so much, I, I haven't heard Spielberg and stuff criticise this as much, but obviously people like elder statesmen like Scorsese who criticise these superhero films. Right. And it's like, it all, it did start, they, they, they have a lot of seeds sown by actually, you know, men like Spielberg, these the MCU films. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah. You've you got to ask yourself, why do we critique it? I think we critique it because it doesn't offer anything unique, a film like Shang-Chi, and what it could offer unique to its formula. And then you've got the argument that a lot of those films, the some that we were talking about, the Eternals debate, mm. with, oh, a director wants to put a more unique spin on it, but then is met with the... Um, critiques of the community so then we've got the critical versus the community opinions whereas these films are just generally placed by both i think it's interesting because i can see it in both ways because my immediate thought process is martin scorsese's opinions weren't necessarily of the film's quality but just how you know disney in particular are using those films to just dominate the cinema and that we're not getting indie films Mm -hmm in the place of 500 screenings of Avengers Endgame, for example. But that comes back again, not even story-wise, it comes back to Jaws because Jaws created the blockbuster. It is true. Jaws created the let's make a movie to make a shitload of money movie. And now they didn't make Jaws to do that. Obviously, he made Jaws out of an authentic love to tell that story and like bring this experience to an audience. But when people saw how much money it made, then the, you know, then the brains start ticking. It over. is true. I think the argument could be made that the the quintessential summer blockbuster mold adheres to you have one film a year, though, in which the MCU formula now has gotten to a point where it will have two or three movies a year. Um, it will, um, and then it also comes back to it's it's not uh, a filmmaker making a film that concurrently serves the capitalistic notion. It's these films are being made with the sole objective of desire yeah. to make money. Yeah. Um, not no because they have soul, soul. exactly into it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like the president he had then carried over to people like Zemeckis with back to the future in the eighties and, and these other people that would then go on to make summer blockbusters. So he wasn't the only one doing this. I mean, Lucas went on a couple of years later and made star Wars, you know, it's like, um, so I think it's just the fact that Disney has become this, monopoly corporation that just saturates the market Mm. um and robs it of any sort and then constricts its creative hearts and souls of its projects and only really brings them on for solely name recognition yeah or the ability to have them push under a thumb and we've and even the ones who are allowed a little bit more creative freedom are still watered down versions of what they're actually capable of. Yeah. Um, well, it, it ultimately comes down to our definition of a formula. Yeah. And it's like when we talk about Jaws, Star Wars, Back to the Future, what is the formula? There? It's the narrative structure. But on top of that is tone and characters and heart and, and themes and all of these things 
that pepper the structure so that we can't tell it's formulaic. Because Jaws and Back to the Future, they're very different films. Structurally, you can tie them into a three-act structure and be like, this is this, this is this beat, this is this beat. But the directors bring something so unique to each of those visions. The same with Star Wars. It is a perfect example of a three-act structure or the hero's journey, but it's peppered in such an interesting uh, tone and, and universe building. While with Marvel, every film has the same tone. Every film has the same narrative structure. Every film has the same type of humor. You know, it's... The formula in the Marvel films spreads... It spreads too far. Mm-hmm. While the formula in these other blockbusters we're talking about, they don't extend past the basic skeletal structure. And the directors bring a super unique vision to sort of cover that mold. I mean, that is the key difference there. And it's easier to recognize great filmmaking in these older films than these newer films. And that's sort of where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, let's see. I want a few little, uh, let's see, things I noticed, little details that I noticed. Things you noticed with Jake. Yeah, things you noticed with Jake. I love the detail of when they they have their first town meeting. Of course, this is when we meet Robert Shaw's character. But Martin's actually sort of sitting with all the general populace. And it's actually the uh, the panel with like the mayor and everyone. And they actually ask him to come join their side before he does the speech. Mm-hmm. I thought there was a little interesting nod to where his allegiance is. It's for the people, not for the government in that way. I like the detail of how all the characters are obsessed with their islander roots. You know, if you weren't born in a midi island, then you're not an islander. Mm. Like little little like New York, Rhode Island type yeah. little jabs in there. I, I like those little details. Um, And yeah. My question to you, in regards to the ending specifically, because this actually fits the more... I've always talked about being a little thrown off by like horror films or action films that just sort of end. So like Alien. They kill the alien, then it ascends. Mm-hmm. Or um, a more much more recent local example is The Light. They defeat the enemy, and then the film just sort of ends. Okay. There's no like extended epilogue or An ending. Epilogue, yeah. Like the, the the Exorcist, you see Reagan walking out and, and like kissing the priest and sort of thanking him. You get a little bit of an epilogue there. And Jaws is one of those films where you don't. They kill the shark, they float away, and then that's the end. Well, they start paddling for sure. They start paddling. But my question is, like, it's a very optimistic ending with the music, yeah. the way it cuts to the beach shore, the bit credits. of banter between Dreyfus yeah. and Snyder. Yeah. But do they really make it back to shore? <laughs> Yeah. How far away are they, though? Oh, they're only, like, what looks to be a kilometre or two. Ah. Okay. It's a long it looks, swim. It looks, it looks way deeper, I guess. Oh, it's probably quite deep, but yeah. they're floating on debris. Yeah, I guess so. You really don't think they make it? No, no, no I was I was joking. It's a, okay. very, it's a very optimistic ending. I'm sure they do make it, but I just had a, I had that funny thought. Still of like, one of the coolest How lines. far away are they really? Oh, about oh, 2K. Okay, okay, fine, fine. <laughs> They're in, a whole, they're in a whole different ocean by the time they killed this thing. <laughs> like, between Shaw's death, like, on-camera death, and the, putting the gas canister in the mouth. and Oh, that's all brilliant. One of the cool Clint, the Schneider, Clint Eastwood shot of him, like, yeah. you know, take this, you son of a... Oh, so good. <laughs> it's beautiful. It, the explosion. It's like Star Wars. It ends with a big explosion. Yeah. It's very satisfying. Yeah, I think it's more satisfying in, in Jaws though. I, I no. well, okay, no, no. Here's what I'll okay. say: like they're both very satisfying moments. 
Yeah. But in terms of Star Wars, like yeah, you have the big sort of space battle. You go for the trench, and then and then it all leads up to that big explosion. And the musical cue is perfect. I'll give you that. But with Jaws, it's two hours of this shark terrorizing you. Mm. And it, I think because it is such an over the top depth, like a, a planet exploding, doesn't have the same like feeling of consequence of life as a shark exploding its limbs and guts flying everywhere there's blood it's satisfying it's very satisfying it is a, I like I think for me it's the because it's that tension build between like the last couple of seconds I think you, you gotta watch that final when the the proton to, torpedoes go in and it's then the cuts and then it cuts back to you know Moff Tarkin going like you may fire when ready and then the John Williams score is just still like absurd yeah. it's I, it's a brilliant moment in cinema i just think in terms of a, a payoff this was a longer plan i like I, what i like about this one is how like snap quick that is because one goes yep. from like this kind of epic finish like almost like we're watching the climax in an, orca, dun, dun, in an orchestra dun, dun, dun. we're watching yep. the the climax in a space opera like yep. that's a hundred percent what we're watching in that one and then it's that reprieve when it hits whereas this one it definitely has that grunt yeah um it's a lot more sudden in Jaws. Yeah, because yeah. and I think it deserves to be because we get we kind of get grounded to this reality when we watch Shaw's death, like yeah, as well, he's getting chomped. We think two of them are dead. Yeah, and it's like, is it going to end with them all failing? Yeah, it, it's possible. Yeah, so it's it is a really sick ending. Um, yeah, would that be your highlight scene by chance? Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just it's, <laughs> sometimes you've just got to go with the classic. You've just got to that yep. final sequence. I think. Um, from the moment that they do that nearly that perfectly framed shot with you know Schneider sitting on the left of frame and and the shark coming out of nowhere, <laughs> it's just so clever. It's kind of what you know we gave Carpenter praise for what he did with Michael in the back of the frame as he moves through the back mm, of the frame. It's yeah. the same sort of thing except this one's like the immediacy of it. Um, it's it's still it still scared me even now watching it. Yeah, when yeah, it happens. So good. It's like on the, the same level as that Babadook stop motion stuff. <laughs> Creeping Ugh. around on the roof. Yeah. So much. Well, I have a few scenes. Okay. I'll give a shout out. I love the scene when um, his son is mimicking his actions as he's sort of holding his face and he's stressed out. And I love, especially because it comes right after the moment where the mother like slaps him, you know, oh, you knew about this and you, you didn't protect my son, that, that whole thing. It comes directly after that. And I just love how subtly... It, t- it talks about not even responsibility. It, it, it's there, but just like the fact that people are counting on him, that he has something that you know, people are counting on him to, to solve this issue. And I love sort of the mimicking of the sun, how that plays. And I thought it was very clever, very subtle. I love the scar comparisons. That's yeah. a brilliant scene, them comparing scars. And, and finally, you know, um, the two characters sort of, earning into mateship and, and, you know, finding a mutual appreciation. Because up until then, they're just insulting each other the whole time. So I thought that was really great. My highlight scene, though, has to be the analysis of the dead body. So we're basically meeting Matt Hooper for the first time. He's like, can I go see the, the body? And it's not a particularly special scene in comparison to all these other ones. But what I loved about it is that it's conveying fear not through dialogue whatsoever, but by blocking and performance. Because you have him obviously react to the dead body. He almost like froze up. He needs a drink and he's sort of walking around and panicking and washing his face. Like he's clearly stressed out. But the dialogue is all like mumbo jumbo. 
It's like, oh, it's this species of shark and this thing and this vertebrae is bitten into and yada, yada, yada. But, like, everything else the scene is doing is what's conveying the fear of, like, this character's terrified of mm. what's about to happen. Yeah, indirect dialogue. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, complete, right. it's completely useless dialogue to us, the audience. Mm-hmm. Almost. Almost useless. I'm sure there's someone in the theater. Like, mumble core effect. Yeah. Someone in the theater has been like, I get those references. <laughs> Not me. One though. marine biologist watching. <laughs> exactly. But I thought that was a very clever thing to do. A lot of just very clever scenes this film it's a brilliant film no dramas well that was our uh, Steven Spielberg director's corner the 30th mm. director's corner on this show Jaws is currently out on Stan yeah it is also included in Prime Video and Binge the so works plenty of places to watch it speaking of all of those streaming platforms Jack what's mm. new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week it's an interesting week Zeke I'll give you that so if you have Stan, you can also watch What We Do in the Shadows later this week, the original with Taika. So very lovely. Coming to Disney Plus this week is Diary of a Wimpy Kid. Now, I watched the trailer for this because uh, what's going on? These movies exist already. It is a fully CGI version of the original Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie. It's not like an original story or anything like that. It's literally the cartoon drawings in the books just in CG. But it is, the trailer tells me this is just a complete retelling, almost word for word, of the first film. Like, identical dialogue, identical scenes, just in CGI. Yeah. Which I don't hate. I think that's a neat idea. Okay. I'd watch it. I like the original film. I like it a lot. Yeah. I mean, look, I I, I don't dislike it or anything like that. I think I've watched the first two. Um, yeah, the first, they definitely get worse after the second one. But I like both of them. I think they... They're, characters they just didn't make them quick enough right and they all aged dramatically like too quickly right well like the it's actors it's did. funny because the third one is when you really start to notice it with the um the main kid's voice mm. gets really deep really quick and it is a little jarring but then you know they recast all of them for like a semi-reboot people hated that and then did they do a fifth one or is this the fifth one i don't know. i i yeah. honestly thought there were max three of them so there's definitely I'll check this four include I think the fourth is the reboot with different characters or different actors I should say. And people were not happy. <laughs> uh but yeah, I, I am actually generally excited for this CGI retelling of the first film, almost line for line, from the sounds of it. Um also coming to Disney Plus this week is Peter J- well actually it's already out. I should clarify that. Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back documentary, which actually did drop Last week, so along with F is for Family, there's another one I just didn't mention last week, so it's out there. There you yes, go. The, so there were there were four films, um, 2010, yep. 2011, 2012, and 2017. So yeah, that's seven. the reboot. Yeah, um, 17 is currently sitting on a 18 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, people hated that one. Um, I never saw it. I couldn't even like get myself to watch it, but that's okay. Coming to Prime this week is The Father, which you most certainly should watch. As well as Chaos Walking, which you most certainly should not watch. <laughs> uh, and coming to Netflix this week, uh, it's actually an exciting one. You've got Jane Campen's The Power of the Dog, which has been in cinemas the last couple of weeks. And this is getting a excellent praise. Mm. So I'm very excited to see it. As well as Single All the Way, which sees Peter convince his best friend Nick to pose as his boyfriend during the trip home this holiday season. Now, Zeke... My question to you, is this going to be this year's happiest season? 
instead of lesbians is now a gay couple? Or is it going to be more like I pronounce you Chuck and Larry? <laughs> I'm assuming the first one. Hopefully. My, my question <laughs> is, is this going to be the Christmas edition of my next drink to cringe? Um, possibly, possibly. Yeah. I actually, you know what? Let's let's see what the uh, general conception is, because I feel like that could go either way. That really could. Yeah, some bad ones on there. Um, There's a series that Liam got me to watch um, about these two that, like, uh, it's centered around Christmas, and then they they leave a book around New York and they bring each other out. It's yeah, rough. There is a no grid on this one. Oh. We do not have opinion. Only 29 people have seen the movie so far. One four-star review from Alex. Delightful and touching, tastefully done, pleasantly saying goodbye to trauma-ridden riddles, and hello to queer stories that make you feel good. That's a pretty positive Sounds praise. Pretty positive. And Hope- pretty well-rounded consensus too. Yeah, hopefully that's the the gist. Mm. That's the best part about a, a what constitutes as a, a Christmas drink to cringe is how like just inappropriate they are. How yeah, blatantly, well, exactly. How blatantly they miss the mark culturally, socially, like <laughs> politically, capitalistically, like, <laughs> like yeah. no? it's fascinating oh, yeah. how bad like a hallmark Christmas movie can be because you yeah. just scratch your head. I saw like I walked past um, just before we wrap up on the show. Um, mm. Obviously, we've got to talk about it next week, but. Um, quick side anecdote. I walked past and when like my mum's watching like the the three like the graveyard sif movies and some of them, I just I don't know how they were made. You know, we're talking mm. about films that we just don't. You know, you brought up the fanatic earlier. <laughs> um, just no clue how they're made. The and they're Christmas the... and we move into December. They do a December film every day, like a Christmas film every day in December. Jesus Christ! And there are some crazy ones, like one about a mannequin coming to life. Um, oh like in like a Pinocchio-esque story. <laughs> um, so it's a little scary. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Um, Fair yeah, enough. Sorry, Jake. No, no, that's totally fine. Well, that was streaming, but Zeke, I'm going to tell you what comes to cinemas this week. It's a big week for exciting. Oscar Isaac plays an ex-military interrogator turned gambler in the card counter. Oh, I've wanted to watch this. I know you're excited for More it. Or Paul Schrader film. There you go. Beautiful. The Hand of God takes place in 1980s Italy and sees a young man experience heartbreak and liberation after being saved from a freak accident. And in fact, it is the Italian entry for this upcoming Academy's international feature selection. So there you go. Could be in the conversation. And I'm hearing, hearing is very likely. Encanto is a Disney animated film playing only at event cinemas from this week, so keep that in mind before you decide to go to Hoyt's to watch it, for example. It sees a young Colombian girl as she faces frustration, being the only member of her family without magical powers. I'm actually hearing this is pretty good as well. That sounds kind of odd. Yeah. Uh, classic Disney uh, non-Pixar <laughs> stitch. So, no, I'm interested. Sort of Raya and the Last Dragon vibes, maybe. Yeah, I still haven't even seen that. Yeah, neither. But, it's, you know, it's on Disney+. Plus and it's sitting there. We'll get to it one day. The Desert Said Dance plays at Luna this Friday the 3rd for a one-time screening. And it's these four men whose passion for riding motorcycles and feeling alive comes before any paycheck. I think it's a documentary. I think yeah, I saw the trailer for this. Cool. Yeah. No, it, look, it looks very pretty. Yeah. I can give it that. Uh, speaking of Luna, you can also catch the WA Screen Culture Awards this Sunday. So, you know, best of luck to some of the friends of the show. Stephen Clark actually has a short up there in competition. So, fingers crossed he wins. The, the piano? Yes. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. Nice. But uh, tickets are 50 bucks. So, that's pretty steep. Not going to lie. Yeah. 
Come on, W. Love Stephen, friend of the show, but <laughs> do you love him fifty dollars though? Yeah. <laughs> well, seeing as this show in three years hasn't made fifty bucks, we probably... <laughs> it needs to be fifty-seven to make up for mainstream. You know what the Screen Culture Award should be doing? They should be getting the Cinema Side Show doing a live panel there. They should. We should be there commentating over the awards. We'll get Stephen on the show. He can promote his film at the same time. <laughs> Episode 151, live at the Screen Culture Awards. I love it. Let's do it. That's actually what we're doing next week. Didn't hear that. (laughs) Oh, no, we're kidding. But there there is one other film coming out next week. It's a big one. The big one. It's a very big one. In fact, Zeke, I think we should do that next week. But, Jake, what's the film? What are we watching? The film of the week, Zeke, that we're doing next week is Dune. There's something awakening in my mind. I can't control it. What did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dreamed them? Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too. Arrakis is a death trap. Kill them. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? Frank Herbert's science fiction tale comes to life as the son of a noble family is entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. Is it water? It probably is, actually. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a really good guess. I I reckon it is. I've never seen Dune. I've never seen it. I've never read it. I wish I could read it in time, but it's a little late, close to the chest now. It comes out on Thursday. Is this our third Velenu? Yeah, we did Blade Runner and... Did we do Arrival? No, we didn't. Okay. This is our second. Second. There you go. Okay. But we, talk, we talked about all of them on our director's corner, though. Yes. So yeah. we sort of covered a good basis there, just in time for Dune, which I will try and at least watch the Lynch film first, at least, even if I can't get the book in. Yeah, I'm I'm probably not. I'm just going to go and blind enjoy this one. It's yeah. summer blockbuster. I There you go. Coming out in Christmas. <laughs> oh, well, it's our summer. Yeah. It's our the same for Spider-Man. These those are all Australian summer blockbusters. Yeah. And we have summer here too. We actually have a more prolific summer. So. Yeah, I've been sweating all bloody night. <laughs> it's been crazy this last week. So, uh thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Denise Villanueva's Dude. 150 baby.